Good evening. It's not a place I'd rather be on this side of eternity than right here with all of you. And I don't care if y'all get tired of me saying that. I'm just going to keep saying it every time they let me get up here. Open, open your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 4. It was about a year after Brianna and I got married, and I, I've probably told you all this story already. I think it was probably for a different purpose, but we uh, got some super cheap plane tickets through an aunt of mine who works for Southwest Airlines, and we got to take a vacation, an anniversary trip actually, to South Lake Tahoe, one of the most beautiful places I have ever been. I could talk about all the different things that we saw, and, and y'all would probably get sick of it. But one of the memories that stands out in my mind the most from our trip was this decision that we made kind of on the fly one day to take a hike to a mountain that was supposed to overlook the lake, and it was going to be really beautiful. I don't even remember the name of the mountain, but I remember pulling it up on the charts, and I mean, it was a 10-mile uh, round trip. It was five miles in and five miles out. It was about a mile of elevation gain, and I remember thinking to myself, well, we're, we're pretty spry. I think that we got this. This shouldn't be too bad, and so we went and had ourselves a big breakfast and decided we were just going to go for a little hike. I think really I decided we were going to go for a little hike. Then it turns out Brianna's too stubborn to stop, and I was too prideful to let her get the best of me, and that was a pretty rough day. Um, I remember the first little bit of the hike, it was beautiful, and you know, you're pretty excited, and a couple hours in, you're starting to think, I wonder what we got ourselves into. And then I made the mistake of asking someone who was headed down the mountain hey, how much longer to the top? And he said, oh, it's not that much more, probably two hours tops. <laughs> oh, man, there is nothing more discouraging to be shaken already and to hear a message like that. And then I looked over at Brianna, and I knew that I had to keep going because there was not a chance in the world she was going to let me turn around. You know, the, the flip side is also true. While it may be discouraging to get news like that, nothing is more encouraging than hearing it's just around the corner. And as we started to get closer and closer, we started to pass people who had a little more pep in their step, and they weren't quite as tired looking, and their eyes were a little bit brighter. And why was that? Because they had just come down from the summit, and you could tell that just around the corner, we were getting to something really cool. Um, and, and so you see a little bit of a resurgence of energy. Your legs that you thought were completely spent all of a sudden have a little more pep, and they can make it a little bit further. And I have to say, it was a quite a view that we got to see when we got to the top. I won't talk about coming down because we still had that ahead of us. You see that also in uh, people running long distance like marathon races. You know, you, 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 watch this, uh, you watch the people running and you see that about halfway through the race when they're away from the crowds, when they're running down the back roads, a, a type of, of exhaustion tends to set in. But no matter how tired these runners are, as they start coming up to the crowds and as they see the finish line ahead, there's a resurgence of energy that seems to hit. Um, something comes from somewhere that's different. Well, here in 1 Peter chapter 4, I, I think Peter saw some discouragement in the eyes of the elect exiles. He says he wrote to the exiles of the dispersion in Pontus and Galatia and Cappadocia and Asia and Bithynia. I think that he saw some discouragement in their eyes. 
And just like we often get tired and, and discouraged, I think they were feeling a little bit of that in the, in the middle of the race, in the middle of the hike. And, and Peter steps in and he, he points them to something that's, that's just over the horizon. He says that the, the finish line is just around the corner. And he paints these pictures with words that, that is so encouraging. We read this passage this morning. And I thought it was fitting for us to circle back around and spend some time with it tonight. Because as we were reading it, I was thinking, oh, there's too much just to jump over that this fast. So we're going to be in 1 Peter 4, and I want to read verses 7 through 11. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Above all... Keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks is one who speaks oracles of God. Whoever serves is one who serves by the strength that God supplies, in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ to him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. You know, we don't have time to unpack every element of this verse, but I think that we have a lot to gain by, by uh, camping here for just a little bit and spending some time with it. So we're going to walk through it piece by piece, um, and then we're going to kind of walk backwards through it, and uh, I hope that you're able to, to gain something as we see what's going on here. He starts off with a, the phrase that I found interesting. He says, the end of all things is at hand. The end of all things is at hand. And I think he's really doing that as a, in a sense to anchor what he starts here back in the previous paragraph. So I think to really understand, we have to back up just a little bit and read some of the verses up there. So, so I want to do that. Let's read verses 1 through 5. It says, Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. Forever, whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery, and they malign you, but they will give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead." It's as if Paul is, is looking at them and he's encouraging him, them and, and saying that there are things that are, are close. It can be easy um, when he says the end of all things is at hand to, to think that he's making some sort of apocalyptic statement. In other words, he's saying the, the world is about to end and I, I don't necessarily think that's what Peter was trying to say. No one knows the time that Christ was going to return. Not even Christ knows. Christ in Matthew 24, 36 said, But concerning that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father only. I think it's more likely here that, that Peter is speaking in generalities. He's speaking in principles. And here's what he's saying. He's looking back at these past few verses and he's saying, We are past the beginning times. In other words, you're in a different stage of your life. You used to live in sinfulness, but now you're in this rest of time phase. This rest of time when you're called to live differently. 
In other words, Peter is saying these are the last days. This is the last leg of the race. The finish line is just around the corner. And that may not necessarily refer to end times, but he's saying it to you. He's saying, you've got this. You're going to blink and it's going to be over. And so here in these last days, after you've made this big decision that you've made to follow this way, in these last days, I want to encourage you with some things. Because we're in the last days, I want to tell you, you need to be self with the the Gentile walk that we read just earlier. In verse 3, he says that the Gentiles do whatever they want. They live in sensuality and passions and drunkenness and orgies and drinking parties and lawless idolatries. He calls it debauchery that they are participating in. And here, Paul calls these Christians to lives of self-control. So he's contrasting what they're called to do with what the world is doing. The world lives in sensuality and, and, and pursues passion. But Paul's saying that's not what we're called to be. He says, not only do I want you to live self-controlled, I want you to be sober-minded. In contrast with these Gentiles who are spending their time partying and, and drinking, and it says drinking parties and, and idolatry and drunkenness. Now, Typically speaking, as we look through Scripture, we find that these things are included in list of sins, but often we aren't directly told why. And Peter does so right here. He says very clearly, for the sake of your prayers. Because a lack of self-control, a, a muddled up mind disconnects your heart from God. And it's really hard to talk to God when you're in that state. You know, uh, there are several different um, claims made with uh, spiritual experiences being sought after through the use of illicit drugs. So there's a a Native American church that has worked to legalize the use of peyote, a hallucinogenic drug, in part of their religious ceremonies. And the claims is that they're able to tap into these spiritual experiences through this altered state of mind that these drugs place them in. Um, There's historical um, evidence for the use of of cannabis for the same purposes in the Scythians as early as the 5th or 2nd century B.C. I look at this passage and I look at what Peter is saying and and it's very clear. He's saying we don't... We don't participate in a religion where a relationship with God comes from these intangible, hard-to-reach things. We don't participate in a religion where a relationship with God is a fabricated, hallucinatory, or irrational, or even an emotionally driven relationship. There's certainly emotion attached with our worship of God. But this relationship that we experience with Him is meant to be real and tangible, and it's built on conversations that we have with Him when we have self-controlled and sober minds. Now that's a powerful statement amidst a world that exhibits everything but self-control and sober-mindedness. But then look at what he says next as we move on through the text. He says, Above all... Keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. So, my first question as I read that is, so is he saying, even if you can't be self-controlled, and even if you maybe aren't sober-minded, as long as you love each other, that's what's important. 
And that's just going to take care of it. I don't think that's what he's saying at all. In fact, I think, I think he's making a, a very different claim. There is no atoning power in love. In other words, love is not what saves us. And not even Peter thought that. Um, it would be remarkably contrary to other biblical teachings. But even in this letter, he writes several different times that speak to the contrary. In 1 Peter 1, 18-19, we see it. I'm going to read chapter 2, verses 24-25 where Peter says, He himself, talking about Christ, bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. For you were like straying sheep that have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Peter obviously understood that salvation came through Christ and Christ alone. So what's he saying here when he talks about love covering a multitude of sins? And I think he's saying this, your self-control and your sober-mindedness maintains your relationship with God while your love maintains your relationship with one another. And we need both of these things. You see, we have a choice when someone wrongs us. We can use their sins as a springboard to attack them, or we can choose to love And overlook these transgressions that show up in our midst. And that's what's been done for us. In Colossians 3.13, we're told that as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And I believe that's what Peter is calling us to here. And he goes on to list several different ways that we can demonstrate this love for one another. And then we can interact with one another. And the first one is hospitality. In verse 9 we read, show hospitality to one another without grumbling. Now hospitality is something that we talk about often. It was one of the marks of true Christian fellowship. And we see it as a common theme throughout the New Testament. So in Romans 12, 13 we read, contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. That's commanded of us. In uh, 1 Timothy 3.2 and Titus 1.8, both of those list hospitality as a, as a required trait for an elder to have. In Hebrews 13.2, we're even sh- told to show hospitality to strangers. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unaware. If you think back to what it would have been like for the gospel to spread in the first century, it would have depended on the hospitality of church members. So the gospel was often spread spread through itinerant preachers who were taken care of by local families in the church. Meetings weren't had in spaces like this. Meetings were had in, in people's homes, and meals were constantly being had together. So hospitality was part of the fabric of their being. It's part of what made the church able to spread the way that it spread. You know, I can't help but think that something has been lost in our garage door society. You know what I mean by that? We all pull up to our houses, and what do we do? We push the button, and the garage door opens, and we drive the car in. And before we even get out, what do we do? We push the button on the garage door, and it shuts behind us. So we've been sealed in our little box. And and we have this space, and, and it's safe, and it's comfortable, and it's ours. But how often are we inviting people into those spaces? How often are we sharing life with others? I certainly think that... Um, I certainly think that there are different ways in our culture that we can show hospitality. But I'm afraid that our homes have become places of retreat. I'm also afraid that our primary interaction with members of the Lord's church has become 
right here in this place, and sometimes this place only. Now, it's not bad to be together. It's wonderful. There's not a place I'd rather be than right here with all of you. But it does allow us to compartmentalize a little more. When we have our space here with our brothers and sisters and our space here at work, and then we can drive and we can have our space here at home, and there's no crossover amongst all of those. I think we can certainly carry out our duty of hospitality to, through selfless service to others in, in a lot of ways, and in a lot of ways that can happen here. This is one of the places where it can and should happen, but it shouldn't only be here. Because the bottom line is this, we aren't here enough. There needs to be more. And finally, note this. When we do offer hospitality, he says it with a caveat. He says that we're supposed to do it without grumbling. Now, my wife's probably rolling her eyes back there because she knows how often I grumble. It's something that I struggle with. I'm guilty, and I would guess that some of you are too. I want to be frank. Our Sunday evening crowd... Y'all are typically a little more involved in the heavy lifting of the day-to-day church operations. This means that you are most, most likely, not exclusively, but most likely the ones who are extending hospitality. And it can be easy to feel like you're taken advantage of. I think especially as we've grown, there's been a tendency to to slide that direction. And we may extend hospitality, but under the surface we want to grumble just a little bit. We want to complain. And Peter here steps up and he says, you need to stop. You need to show hospitality without grumbling. Why? Because the end is at hand. Who cares? We're here, we're we're called to, to take care of one another. That's what this is about. And so then he goes on, we move into verse 10. As each of you have received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. The fact that he says that these gifts were received and says that they were according to God's varied grace most likely implies that he was talking about spiritual gifts. So this makes us a little uncomfortable. We spent some time this morning in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, but I I stopped before we got to healing. Do all speak with tongues? Do all interpret? But earnestly desire the higher. He's being very clearly stating. He goes on to, to paint this picture of love and what it looks like and how it is superior to all of these gifts. And in verses 8 through 12, he says, Love never ends, but as for prophecies, they'll pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part. But when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. And when I became a man, I gave up childish ways. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. So prophecies, tongues, human knowledge, those are specifically listed as elements that are going to pass away because they're imperfect. They're surpassed by the perfect. And I believe perfection is found in the full revelation of Scripture and in the firm establishment of God's church, the the vehicle through which His love is being spread to the world. Now, this lesson is not about spiritual gifts, so we're not going to continue down that road tonight. I just want to ask ourselves this. Are there still gifts that we can use to serve one another even today? And I believe the answer to that is yes. We have gifts of teaching and gifts of service. So I think this text still applies to us today. In verse 11 we read, Whoever speaks 
as one who speaks the oracles of God. In other words, if you're going to speak, you should do it in a way that edifies. We as God's people are not in the business of promoting New Age self-help philosophies. We aren't an organization that is meant to promote man-made ideas. The pulpit, our Bible classes, even our conversations among believers aren't to be centered around the wisdom of anything other than the oracles of God. If you go to Acts 7.38, he talks about these oracles. And he says, This is the one who was in the congregation in the wilderness with the angel who spoke to him at Mount Sinai and with our fathers. He received living oracles to give to us. So he's looking back at Moses and he's talking about the, the commands of God that were given directly to him. And today we have the living oracles of God in written form. We have the, the, the full scripture that allows us to be fully equipped for everything that we need. 2 Timothy 3, 16-17 says, All scripture is breathed out by God. It's profitable for what? For, for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for everything good work. Those are the living oracles that we're called to share. And then he goes on to say, whoever serves is one who serves by the strength that God supplies. In other words, if you're going to serve, you would, should serve how God would do it. You see, as the church, we aren't in the business of serving in the name of anyone or anything other than God. As I mentioned this morning, our strength comes from Him. So to serve under any other guise is, is false advertising. We aren't an organization meant to promote humans. You know, we've all seen the volunteer opportunities where a company or an organization will send out their employees and they'll put on their company polos or their company t-shirts and they'll go and they'll pick up trash or serve the community. And, and I think that that's a, a wonderful thing to do. But it's ultimately done for the betterment of that company or that organization. It builds rapport in the community. It serves to further their cause. That's not what we're called to do as Christians. We're called to serve the cause of God and God alone. We serve by His strength and we point people towards Him. Our trust, our hope, our strength, our purpose, the very power that makes everything possible is supplied by God. And then in our text we get to the why. In order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. In other words, your gifts and your talents, they aren't meant for you. That's the point that I was trying to make this morning. Your gifts and your talents are meant to be given to others for the glory of God. And I think at this point, like children, we might say, yes, but why? And, and Peter beats us to that in verse 11. At the very end, he says, because to him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. In other words, He is where everyone should be pointed. That's what it means to give Him glory. He is the one that holds all power. He has dominion. And the God that we serve is eternal. He exists forever and ever. It's like Peter is looking at these Christians and they're in the middle of a, of a hard race and he's saying, look, don't stop. Don't forget why you're running. Look how close the finish line is. God is the goal. God is the aim. God is the prize. And He is worth it because He is eternal and He has all power. He is the one that is worth glorifying. And this is why. This is why you are pointing people to Him. 
This is why your gifts and your talents are being given to others. This is why you are serving through His power. This is why you are teaching His things. This is why you are extending hospitality with no grumbling. This is why you are staying connected to Him through prayer. This is why you are living in a way that is drastically different, even though you might be being made fun of. This is why, so hang on, it's worth it. I think maybe that's a good message for us to take to heart tonight as well. Hang on, because it's worth it. You know, when we made it to the top, the view was beautiful. Sometimes the hike is hard, but it's worth it. It can be easy to get discouraged, and if that is you, this is the place to be. Because this is where love is found and hospitality is shown, where the oracles of God are spoken and where service by His strength is conducted. Maybe you need some of that love. Maybe you need prayer, support, encouragement, forgiveness. Maybe you need all of that, and we stand ready to help. Maybe you're an outsider, and and you hear the things that we're talking about, and and you want in on this, and I have to tell you, it's a pretty awesome thing. The biblical pattern is, is simple and clear. Belief in Christ with a repentant heart is what first emerges. And once you've seen the truth and desired the change, this is always followed by baptism and by being brought in and incorporated to God's family to the Christian community, to the church. So if you believe, we stand ready to baptize you and walk with you. Regardless of where you're at, if you have a need, we invite you to come forward as we stand and sing.